Good morning, everyone. It's so good to see each of you here this morning. It's so good to be worshiping God together. We're continuing in our series here. Uh, we're doing this Experiencing God Discipleship together, and I'm trying to uh, reinforce some of what we're learning during the week. I want to encourage you to keep doing the work daily. I know that it requires uh, significant intentionality and carving out the time to do this, uh, but I hope you also are recognizing the, how rewarding it is to actually make the time to seek God intentionally and uh, realizing that God is uh, eager for us to have an experience with him in life. Um, so we're continuing today. Uh, I was thinking, uh, given the kind of the topic of, of this week's work, uh, have you ever noticed that life never stops changing? Now, when you're a child, you think, one day I'm going to turn 18, and then I'll be an adult forever. Uh, all, the, all the hardships and sufferings and indignities of being a child will be over, and I will adult for the rest of my life, and that's it. I've arrived. That's really uh, not the way it works. Being a child, being an infant, is not like being a child. Being a child is not like being a youth. Being a youth is not like being a young single adult. Being a young single adult is not like being a young married adult. Being young married adults without kids is not like being young married adults with kids. Being parents of infants is not like being parents of youth. And it's not like being parents of kids in college. It's not like being parents who are empty nesters, which is not like facing retirement, which is not like facing the many adjustments that come with old age and facing the reality of death. Is there ever a point in life where we are not having to change? No. Life is a constant series of adjustments. Never is this more important than when it comes to God. So we're talking this week about adjusting our life to God. The memory verse for the week is Luke 14, verse 33, but I'm going to back it up and take it from verse 25 to 33. And before we jump into it, let me tell you what's happened in the first half of chapter 14 of Luke. It begins with Jesus being invited to the house of a ruler of the Pharisees for dinner. And it is a Sabbath, and they're there at the dinner, and there's a man there with dropsy, with some kind of unusual swelling. And uh, Jesus poses the question, is it lawful? Of course, this being a, a ruler of the Pharisees' home, these are the experts on what is allowed or not allowed according to God's commandments, right? Is it lawful according to God's law to heal a man on the Sabbath or not? And nobody says a word. Crickets. Nobody has the courage to say anything. So Jesus just turns to the man, heals him, and sends him on his way. And then he talks to them about the rabbinic teaching that allowed that if your ox fell into a well on, on the Sabbath, you could get him out of the well on the Sabbath, even though that required a considerable amount of work. How much more so release a human being created in the image of God from sickness on the Sabbath. Nobody 
dares to say anything in response. And we go on in this dinner, and Jesus is watching the people who are coming into the dinner, and they're all jostling and trying to secure for themselves the places of greatest honor at the table. So Jesus teaches these people. He says, don't do that when you go to a party. Don't try to find the highest seat of honor and sit down there. Do just the opposite. Go seat yourself at the lowest place of honor so that you leave your honor in the hands of the person who invited you to his home. And let him be the one to say to you, no, you need to come up here. You deserve to be in a position of greater honor. Let it be up to the host, not you. In fact, he then turns to the host and says, you know, when you throw a party, don't invite your friends. Don't invite wealthy people and connections and uh, create the kind of networking that we all do when we do these kinds of things, these big social events, because you know that they're going to be able to repay the favor. They will invite you back to their home when they're throwing a big party and you'll be hobnobbing with all the elite and powerful and making all the handshakes and relationships that will help you get ahead in life. Don't do that. When you throw a party, invite the crippled, the lame the poor, people who you know will never be able to return the favor. Invite them to your home. And he says, you know what? If you're looking for a reward, do that and let your reward come at the resurrection. In other words, let God take care of the reward. Basically, Jesus is establishing that God's kingdom does not work like the kingdoms of this world. In this world, we get ahead by securing relationships with wealthy and powerful people. We develop relationships that uh, make sure that we have the resources we want and uh, the, the protections we feel like we need. And that is how we strive and struggle and claw our way to positions of great honor. In God's kingdom, we give all that away. And we let God be the one who decides who he wants to honor. And we simply invest ourselves, not in those who are going to further our personal benefit, but on those, in those who need what we have to give most. It's completely upside down. That's really what these verses we're looking at today are about. Or they're about this very radically upside down life that we're talking about when we talk about following Jesus. Let's begin in verse 25. Now many crowds were accompanying him, and turning, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, even his own soul, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This is one of those famous hard sayings of Jesus. People write books about this. There are quotes of Jesus that people love to put on stickers. This is not one of them. And you might think, well, surely that can't be right. Certainly Jesus, who has both in actions and in teaching constantly talked about the importance of loving one another, even to the point of loving enemies. 
Surely he would not encourage us to hate anyone. What does he mean by this? And he describes the people that are most likely the ones we're going to have the closest bonds to, our father, our mother, our spouse, our children, our siblings. Who do we love more in life than these? Not that. His own soul. My own life. What does he mean to say we have to hate these things? And I think the final sentence here helps us understand what he's talking about. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's, I think, a little difficult. We know what a cross is. Mentally, I think we know. Uh, But for us, carrying a cross... I think we, we throw that term around so much that we don't really capture the, the horror of what Jesus is saying here. Crosses are beautiful things. We have very decorated, pretty crosses hanging on the walls of our homes. We hang them on necklaces around our necks or on bracelets or rings. We decorate with crosses. We put them on bumper stickers. When Jesus was saying this, nobody did any of that with crosses because the cross was the most horrendous form of capital punishment humans had ever invented. Not just because it was excruciatingly painful, which it was. They put you spread eagle on a beam and nailed you to it and just hung you there until you died. You died either of thirst or asphyxiation. But one way or another, you were just going to hang there until you died of exposure. Uh, And, you know, there might be a, a brief moment when the nails go into your wrists where shock sets in and you don't feel that, but that wears off pretty quick. And it's just excruciating pain until you're dead. But that wasn't the worst of crucifixion. Crucifixion was not designed just to prolong a very painful physical death. It was designed to humiliate. Because you were not crucified fully dressed. You were crucified stark naked. Spread eagle for the whole world to gawk and mock and ridicule. And in a culture of honor and shame, we still have cultures like that today. You go anywhere in the Far East and uh, the people are more afraid of bringing shame to their family than just about anything. Uh, This was death by shame. It was meant to erase the significance of your human existence to the point that your death is so horrendous that anybody looking upon you in in death is going to want to have nothing to do with you and the memory of you will be erased. It is death by humiliation as much as it is by asphyxiation or thirst. So Jesus says, you need to bear this if you want to be my disciple. It isn't just uh, death. It's not just this physical thing. It's the, the denial of everything you hold dear 
as to who you are and what you are. That's what he means. So I think the way Jesus is trying to help us understand this is we have to renounce all of this. The things we hold closest and dearest to our heart and what do we treasure more than our own soul, our own life? My life is the most valuable thing I have. Jesus says even that. Even the things closest to me, I have to uh, renounce, I have to turn away from them if I'm going to turn to Jesus. Discipleship is a death march. We are dead men walking. That's the way Jesus describes what it means to follow him. We have to surrender it all, not just some. We don't just lay a couple of token things on the altar. We find the most valuable things we have and say, here it is. Jesus is going to flesh this out a little bit with a couple of examples. First one's about building a tower. For which one of you, wanting to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the expense, whether he has enough to complete it, lest having laid its foundation and not being able to finish, all those who are observing might begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. That's all one sentence, by the way. But that's the illustration. You want to build a tower, not just a hut. Something that requires significant uh, care and, and uh, engineering. A tower is a tall edifice. You, you can't just throw that together. You have to know what you're doing. And it, to build it requires an investment, right? What does it take to build the tower? How much money is it going to cost you to build it? And nobody sits down to build a tower without thinking, do I have the money to finish this? Because if you do it that way, if you uh, get into it and you have not invested what needs to be invested, what's going to happen is you're going to lay the foundation and run out of money and everyone's just going to make fun of you. What an idiot! He tried to build something and just left it. Not only does he not have a tower, but he lost everything else in the process. He's out of money. What does this have to do with Jesus and following him? What's the tower about? I would suggest that the tower is what Jesus came to bring. The tower is what we are buying into when we say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. The tower is the kingdom of God and all that it promises. It is life eternal. It is redemption from sin and death. It is the radical and complete transformation from shame to glory, from death to life everlasting, from broken to perfectly healed, from powerless to powerful. See, this is what Jesus came to do. He came to take all that sin has broken in all of creation and restore every bit of it to perfection and glory. That's the tower. Now, what we're talking about with discipleship is how do we get in on this? 
How do we participate in this so that the tower becomes what God builds of my life? What is the cost for God to build this tower? Jesus is saying that the cost is everything. And you need to know that up front. You need to know that if you want Jesus to give you what he has planned to give you, it's going to take all you've got. Because he's not going to leave any bit of it untouched. He's not going to leave any corner of your heart or life unredeemed. And every bit of it has to go. He is going to remake everything. Now, this is the glorious grand thing God lays before us. This eternal plan he's working out and it encompasses the entirety of creation. God is at work bringing redemption over chaos. Restoring every single thing that is wrong. Now, what he's going to have to change in your life for that to happen is everything. Not just a bit. And here's the problem with a lot of us. When we consider discipleship, we think we only need a little bit of investment to get this thing done. I'll throw out a little bit of faith. Like a mustard seed. And I will trust God to forgive my sins and give me life eternal, but that's it. We have to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord for him to be able to redeem us because everything about us has to be transformed, has to be changed. So what is the cost of following Jesus? Everything. And here's the exchange we're talking about. God, when he created us, gave everything to us. He created all of creation, and then as the culminating act of creation, created humankind in his image and likeness. And then he turned to them and said, I want you with me to govern all of this. In fact, Adam, give names to all the creatures in creation. Let's do this together. I want to share everything I have with you. And we will govern creation together. That was not good enough for us. We said, no thanks, God. We'd rather do it ourselves. We don't want to govern creation with you. We're going to do it our own way. And all creation was broken because of it. What does it cost for God to fix that? We have to abandon completely all that we've been trying to do on our own. All that we've been trying to build without him. So what is it, what is God going to have to change? Every bit of it. What do I have to lay on the altar? Everything. Let's look at another illustration. Or what king? Verse 31. Or what king going out to engage another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to engage the one with 20,000 who is coming against him? And if he is not able, surely while he is still far away, he will send an ambassador to sue for peace. Let's look at it another way. You might say the cost is too high. 
I don't want to give up everything. I just wanted to give up a couple of things. You know, I'm happy to do a couple of token things. Hey, I'll even go as far as tithing. I will give God 10% of my income. Wow! I don't want to give him everything. I don't want to surrender everything about my life to him. Well, Jesus says, well, think of it this way. Imagine two kings. They're about to engage on the battlefield. And one of those kings knows he's got 10,000 soldiers, and he knows that the guy that's coming against him has 20. You do the math. Who's going to win this battle? Who's going to win this war? The guy with 20. What does the smart king do? Well, if he's the guy with 10, he sues for peace. He doesn't send his troops out to get massacred and just utterly ruined and destroyed. He sues for peace. Who are the kings in this illustration? Well, I think one of those kings is God. One of those kings is us. And when we talk about discipleship and putting our faith in Jesus and surrendering our lives to whatever it is he wants to do with them, surrendering our eternity to the purposes he has in his eternal kingdom, all of that, we could think of it as this war that's been waging since Adam and Eve. I talked about it. We decided, God, we do not want you to be king. We want to be king. So we rebelled against our king and creator. Even though we did not design creation, we have no idea how it functions. We have no idea what purpose it has. Because we did not make it, we think we're smart enough that we will strip bare the secrets of God himself and unlock all the secrets of creation and we will govern and rule it without God. We don't need him. That is the war. It's us against God. And Jesus in his uh, parable here is ridiculously generous by saying that we have 10,000 to bring to this battle. But the point of this illustration is, who's going to win? Let's be blunt. There's no way the 10,000 guy is going to win. There is no way our fight against God is going to end with us the victors and God the defeated. It cannot happen. So what has the victor determined he's going to do? It's called redemption. He is going to restore all of creation to perfection and glory. And he has begun already. 2,000 years ago, this began when Christ came. And I can tell you 2,000 years later, the kingdom of God has made the world a much better place than it was 2,000 years ago. But clearly, God is not done yet. Jesus is going to rule until every enemy is vanquished. And the final enemy will be death itself. Jesus is not going to stop doing what he's doing ever. The kingdom will progress on until there is nothing left but the kingdom. This war is already won. What do we need to know about this? If we reject Jesus, if we say, I don't want to be on the side that's winning, I want to be on the side that is defying the guy who's going to win. What is the end result of that going to be for me? It's going to be a massacre. My life is going to be utterly ruined. 
So what do I do? I sue for peace. You know what that peace looks like? It's called the gospel. God, even though he knows what he's doing, even though he's made his plan, and nobody will stop it, it's going to happen, whatever may come. He has decided to enable his enemies to sue for peace, and he will receive them. We are those enemies. We are the king with 10,000 who, who at some point, hopefully in life, recognizes that I am fighting a war I am never going to win. I will never be God. I will never defeat his plan. And it's going to happen no matter what I do. No matter what I choose to do with my life, God's plan is going to happen. The only thing I get to decide is whether I will sue for peace or I will go down in flames. So yes, Jesus demands a lot. But consider the stakes. We're talking about eternity. How much of my sinful crap do I expect God to allow me to keep with me into eternity? Not a bit of it. He will not tolerate one bit of it. That is why I have to surrender everything. Because he's not going to let any of that continue. Discipleship is the process by which we shed ourselves of the things that are not fit for eternity. As we are being given the gift from Christ of those things that will last forever. It is a constant process of, of changing, of trans, being transformed from one glory to another by peering into the glory of Christ himself. What we need to know about this is that the war against God cannot be won. You will either sue for peace and the gospel is what that looks like or you will die. Those are the only options. How fortunate for us that the terms of peace God has extended are, I will forgive you your insult, your pride. I will forgive every ugly and nasty and selfish thing you have done. I will actually bear the cost of it myself. Bear the punishment of it myself. And I will give you everything I have. I will share with you all of creation, not just the creation you know now, but the creation I am making. Gloriously perfect. I will share with you everything. You will rule with me over creation. We're so lucky that that is the way it works out. That, that is the, those are the terms of peace God extends to us in Christ. So Jesus wraps it all up in our memory verse, verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. A couple of interesting notes about the Greek there. That word we translate renounce also means to say goodbye. Sayonara. Bye. Uh, Turn away from and uh, say the definitive, you're out of my life. To what? 
to all that he has. The way it's worded in the Greek literally would be translated, all that is being of himself. All that exists or that is in existence that is of him. Some translations, uh, I think, don't catch how broad this is. Some say all that he owns or all his possessions, and it's much more than that. It's anything that falls within the realm I would claim as mine. That means my body. That means my soul. That means my thoughts. That means everything that I think of as belonging to me. Jesus says, if we want to follow him, we have to say goodbye to all of it. We have to discover what the Apostle Paul discovered. I like it when he reviews the great things he had achieved in life. He was a Roman, Roman citizen by birth, a very treasured, valued thing from a wealthy family, ended up studying under the most respected rabbi of the day, Gamaliel, there in Jerusalem, and he was an up-and-coming star, and we know from reading his letters just how intellectually gifted Paul was. He was a genius, and the world was his oyster. He had it all. And he says, you know, I thought I had it all until I took one look at Jesus. And then I realized all of that is nothing but garbage. I count it all as loss because of the surpassing worth of Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, to come to the realization, I do not need my father or my mother or my brother or my sister or my spouse or my children. I don't even need my own soul. I can lose any of that. But if I have Jesus, I'm fine. We live under the idolatries that place any and everything in the position that only God deserves. We think, I cannot live my life without this. I cannot live my life without my father or my mother. I cannot live my life without my spouse, without my children, without my siblings. I cannot... Jesus says, you have to say goodbye to all of it if you want what I'm offering. I have to be not the biggest treasure in your life. I have to be the only treasure in your life. To the point that if we go from uh, your valuation of me, Jesus, to the next most valuable thing in your life, say your father, mother, brother, sister, children, your own soul, we could describe that distance as, I love Jesus, but I hate these things. That's how much less than Jesus, I love them. The beauty of this is, Jesus says, you have to give up everything you have to me because I want to give you everything I have. That's the exchange. And only a fool would balk at the cost because who comes out of that exchange the better? Everything I have will, will crumble to dust. Everything I can do will be erased. So since that's the reality, 
I can happily say goodbye to all of it because I have found the one thing that actually will make a difference. Jesus. The Christian walk is inevitably a life of constant adjustment. Everything about us has to be transformed. We're not following our plan or agenda. We are following Jesus. He's the one with the plan. We have no idea what that is unless he tells us. We have to learn the skill as we pursue this love relationship with Jesus of watching to see where his hand is at work, of earnestly seeking his will, of asking him to reveal what he is up to so that we can join him. When he answers, we have to adjust and trust what the discipleship material we're working through calls a crisis of belief. It's a, a crisis of, do I actually trust that what God is up to is better than what I was planning to do? Do I actually trust that he is good and righteous and perfect in all his ways and that his way is always going to be better than what I had planned? And then comes the adjusting. We have to change course in whatever ways may be required. Nothing matters, only Jesus. Have you said goodbye to everything that is yours yet? Jesus is so much better. We're going to sing a song of invitation now. and This is your opportunity to respond to God's word. I don't know where you stand this morning. Maybe you are recognizing this morning that you have not given Christ what he's asking for. I want to challenge you today to lay it all before him and say, I'm giving it all up. I want all that you have for me, not a bit of it. I want it all. And I want you to take it all. If that's you this morning, this is your opportunity to come forward and say that to God in prayer. There are people here at the front who will uh, listen to what God has put on your heart and they will pray with you. Let's all stand. I'll ask those who are going to help us with the invitation to please come forward at this time. Come while we sing.